This podcast was created to educate listeners on the experiences of diverse individuals. However, all opinions expressed by the host or guests do not reflect the overall standing of Tarleton Radio or Tarleton State University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Making Space a Diversity Dialogue. I'm your host, Cole, and this is a bi-weekly podcast where together we'll have questions answered about socially sensitive topics while learning how to create lasting relationships with diverse people. As many of you know, early 2020 has been an unprecedented time for change amongst the nation at large, from the global pandemic to the clashes between law enforcement and the Black community. Recently on the show, we've defined systematic racism and taken the perspective of people of color on the protests. We also, back in February, had a guest discuss his experiences growing up in the Black community and the underlying fear of law enforcement that is ingrained into young Black boys. This week's episode is going to be a little different. We're going to take a look at the law enforcement perspective on this time. To help discuss this topic, Dr. Alex Del Carmen, a criminology expert, agreed to speak with me. Dr. Del Carmen is currently serving as the Associate Dean of the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the Fort Worth campus of Tarleton State University. He also has four years of experience as an instructor in the Arlington Police Department Training Academy, as well as an instructor for the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement. He is also certified as a grant evaluator and reviewer for the Department of Justice. As of 2008, he authored a book called Racial Profiling in America, and continues to explore his interest in racial profiling and the relation of ethnicity and crime in his published works. So he does have a really vast relationship and a vast knowledge of law enforcement. We did an interview separate from this podcast recording, so I'll go ahead and play that for y'all. All right, first and foremost, I'd like to thank you for joining me on this interview and joining the listeners and talking about this topic. And currently you're working as an executive director for the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Tarleton State University, correct? I'm actually the associate dean. Uh, oh, you're the associate dean. Okay. Associate dean of the School of Criminology, Criminal Justice and Strategic Studies, and also in that same role, I'm the associate dean of the College of Liberal and Fine Arts. So. Oh, wow. Wow. But you, you've also published some works, the uh, book specifically titled Racial Profiling in America back in 2008. Right. So, and, and then now uh, I'm about to release my, uh, the book that I finished a few months ago, which is called uh, Racial Profiling in Policing Beyond the Basics. And oh, wow. that rolls out in a few weeks. Um, happy, to, happy and proud to say that's my ninth book. Uh, that I've written in my career. That's incredible. Probably the most significant one, uh, given yes. the times in which we live right now. So, what what drew you to these topics? I know um, I was looking it up, and your areas of interest have always been policing, racial profiling, ethnicity, and crime. What drew you to those? Yeah, so so I'm originally from Nicaragua. Uh, I was born in Nicaragua, and mm. I came to the United States when I was 14. Uh, my, my dad was a U.S. citizen uh, overseas and uh, kind of a long story, but, um, but we, I, as a child, I went through the Civil War in, in Nicaragua. I survived uh, oh, the wow. Civil War, which was pretty horrible. Got to see really horrible things that kids really shouldn't be seeing. And, and then we lived under communism for a couple of years. And so, mm. so when we came to the States, I had a very different perspective of life than most kids my age, as you can imagine. Well, most of them were worried about, you know, um, you know, in one way or another about skating boards and, 
whether or not they made it to their basketball game or not. Mm. Um, you know, I was more interested in whether or not my next meal was going to be served. And so it gave me a great deal of passion for the understanding of violence. Um, it inspired me to understand uh, racism and, uh, and really get to understand what the implications were when people hated each other, right, based on appearance. Mm. So it really became my lifelong work, uh, but it's really dated to my childhood experiences. Wow, that's an incredible and unimaginable experience you went through, definitely. Now you chose to go into the law enforcement kind of realm in your career and criminology and you're looking at violence and everything. Have you had any negative interactions with law enforcement because of your ethnicity? Well, you know, so so my mom reminds me that when we first um, came to the United States, we, we one of our trips was to New Orleans, and that um, police officers, you know, immediately put us. We were getting on board a uh, Greyhound bus, mm -hmm. and uh, and they put us up against the wall, and they began to search us, and they thought we were undocumented, so they began to ask all kinds of questions to my dad and to my mom, and. And I don't really recall that uh, because I was must have been, um, you know, in some ways Very young. Uh, repressive of that of mm -hmm. that memory. But but obviously, I don't think you can be a minority in the United States today and not really understand uh, racism, right, or have experienced it. So I certainly experienced it um, throughout my life. I mean, I've, I've you know I remember my first semester in graduate school when my professor called me into his office and he said that. Uh, he closed the door and this was my first day in the master's program where he said um, that, that he was really uh, wanted to make me aware that some people in the classroom were not comfortable with me being there. And I said, well, what mm -hmm. do you mean by that? And he says, well, because he says, uh, you know, I, I, but I want you to know that, you know, you're not, uh, I don't, I don't have any discriminatory, uh, you know, acts towards uh, people like you. He says, I want all of your people to be educated. Right. So, I remember mm -hmm. that I made a smart aleck remark. Like I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that I let my people know that your people want us to be educated and, uh, and, uh, yes. and we'll go forward. You know, so, so things like that, where there's always sort of that moment. In fact, a few weeks ago, um, I was moving my daughter um, to, her, to her apartment up in D.C. Um, and she's a junior there in college. And, and, uh, and one of the people that saw me sort of push a little card that had her books and whatnot said, uh, I didn't say hello to you the first time because I thought you were the help. Um, and and mm -hmm. so, so you still, you know, and my sister is an OBGYN oncologist at Harvard, right? And she tells me all the time that, you know, she goes into a patient's room and she's one of the greatest surgeons in oncology now. In mm -hmm. fact, she runs uh, the Mass General Hospital and she's the chief medical officer there. And she walks in a room and people say, oh, I don't need my linens to be uh, changed. And, you know, I just waited for the doctor, right? So, uh, you know, things like that happen, right? But but you right. I think what's important is what you do with it, uh, more so than the comment that is made, right? So so right. is that you have to sort of get above it and use it as an inspiration to do something good, you know? Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, there's definitely, I feel like, um, a lot of underlying from people that they don't realize what they're saying can be hurtful. Um, just like that graduate professor um, using like that terminology uh that phrase and there there are definitely different ways that racism shows uh, especially in america where it's either blatant or um 
kind of undercover, you know? Yeah. And I also think that unfortunately, you know, you, um, you know, some people don't know what they don't know. Right. And, right. and they, they exactly. say, you know, it's innate in them to say it uh, and they don't know how hurtful and discriminatory they sound. And I think in some cases it's actually racism. In other cases, it's just mere ignorance about mm -hmm. implications of what they're saying. Right. So. Right. And that's where podcasts like mine and Dr. Morrow's come in and we try to help educate and give that information out. Absolutely. Uh, going back to some of your experiences in the jobs you've done, you, um, you worked as an instructor or are still currently an instructor of the Law Enforcement Management Institute of Texas. Will you explain a little bit about what you've done there and also your work with the Department of Justice? Yeah, so, so back in 2001, a long, long time ago, <laughs> right before 9-11, <laughs> um, I was working at another university in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I received a call from someone that wanted to hear uh, me do a presentation on this very new topic at the time called uh, racial profiling, right? So mm -hmm. I had... I had obviously, you know, attained a great deal of interest on the topic. And I had done some preliminary research areas. I, I probably became one of the early uh, criminologists that uh, did work in this area, right? So, so mm -hmm. I was doing some volunteer work with the Arlington Police Department. So I had access to data. And I started sort of, you know, surveying the police officers, trying to figure out how they thought when they stopped somebody and whatnot, and published a few articles on that made a few presentations. And so um, this, this person comes in and says, we want to hear what you have to say about it. And, and we academics, anytime you give us an opportunity to, to have an audience, we, we automatically say yes. And so, so I said, absolutely, absolutely. I, I'll be happy to tell you whatever you want to know about this. And so she came up with an assistant and uh, they sat in my classroom and I gave them like a 25, 30 minute um, breakdown of how racial profiling could be measured. What does it look like? And, and then at the end of the meeting, she says, well, you're hired. And I said, ma'am, I didn't think this was a job interview. I'm really happy. <laughs> I just thought it was a presentation, right? <laughs> right exactly. So, so, so she says, no, she says, you're hired to train all the chiefs of police in the state. And I thought, okay. Wow. So I, That's I said, a good yeah. job. I, did, I didn't say that. I said, I said yes. And so, <laughs> so I uh, so I said, sure, that's, that's great. I had no idea what they were going to pay me, what it implied, but mm -hmm. I was a young baby criminologist and just excited to do something, you know, that would be impactful. So mm -hmm. I realized that what this meant at the time was that I was going to be going all throughout the state uh, once a month. And I was going to be going to a different city. Like we went to Galveston, to Corpus, to El Paso, to Houston, um, to go to a, a city, a different city in Texas and train about 60 to 70 police chiefs at a time. Right. Um, mm. Texas had actually passed the law. It was called Senate Bill 1074, which was the racial profiling law that became effective January 1 of 20 of 2002. And so, so they wanted an instructor to sort of get the chiefs ready for what the state was requiring them to submit. And so that became my job. And, and I don't know if you know this or your audience, but uh, Texas has the largest number of law enforcement entities out of any other state in the United States. I did um, not so, know that. Yeah, no. so we have we have over 2,200 law enforcement agencies in the state, um, which, which makes us number one in the U.S. as far as the number of agencies. And so, so as you can imagine, I had to train 2,200 plus, um, you know, in less than two years, right? So, so it was, you know, 80, 100 people in a class, yes. 
And, and, and that, I had no idea, Cole, that this, that was going to change my entire life, right? I, I had no clue. And I, what I mean by that is that all of these agencies began to say, well, Dr. Del Carmen, would you help us do the report? Would you help us train? Would you help mm-hmm. us do? And so I ended up, you know, moving forward now, you know, uh, 19 years later, uh, you know, I've trained over 15,000 police officers and I have wow. trained every chief of police in the state of Texas, like every single one of them. Like you go to the port of Corpus, you go to the airport in Houston, you mm-hmm. go to the Houston Police Department, you go to the Dallas Police Department, you go to Fort Worth, any police department in the state, that chief has to undergo a training within two years of being appointed chief. And mm-hmm. they have to go through a 40 hour block. And I am the first instructor of those 40 hours. So I got, I got to know every one of them. Yeah, you became like a, an essential resource for every police department in the state, basically. I became the guy that would give them answers to some of the questions that they had, right? So they had questions mm-hmm. about the law, about the training, about the requirements of the law. And so, so, so what, it, what it made me was love my job even more. Because as you can imagine, I would bring all of those opportunities to my students, right? So right. one of my students wanted to be a police officer. I could just pick up the phone and call that chief and say, you know, I've got a star in my class and I think this mm. person, and it's not that that's going to really help them get the job as much as it would help, you know, the, the, the student get promoted uh, within the many applicants that they would receive. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so it made me have contacts for data. Um, you know, obviously I, it allowed me to publish more. It allowed me to develop great friendships with some of the really, really good people in law enforcement that I've gotten to know mm-hmm. uh, and respect a great deal. And also make a difference, right, before the community, because the community wanted to hear not only from an expert, but they wanted to hear from a minority. They wanted to hear from somebody that's, that came to the United States. Like, I didn't write or read the book on what it's like to be a minority, right? Mm-hmm. I am one, you know, and, and, yeah. and they can disagree with my points uh, on both sides of the aisle. But the one thing they cannot take away from me is the fact that I came to the United States without being able to speak English, that mm-hmm. I came here with the suitcase that I owned and that's all we had, um, that, that this was as difficult as you read uh, stories of immigrants coming through Ellis Island. It was no different for us. Um, and, and, uh, and so I, I will never forget who I am uh, in spite of any titles that I may hold, any books that I may write. I'm still that kid that came to the United States at 14 um, to a country that I did not know, that I did not understand. Uh, and to really just welcome it with open arms to, you know, to, to what became known as my country afterwards. And you have kind of built this knowledge and this, this true relationship with law enforcement and the police departments around the state. What would you say the, the role of law enforcement is or, or the goal of law enforcement would be in the nation? Well, you know, I think it's to really serve the public and protect us. You know, I mean, the serve and protect logo that you see on police cars, I think it's really true to what their job and their mission is. Um, And I will say, I make this clear, you know, the FBI estimates that this morning there are over 1 million police officers in the streets of the United States today, right? So, Mm -hmm. and I've always believed that most of them are honest, decent, hardworking people, right? They get up Mm -hmm. every morning to protect and serve society. But like every profession out there, there are some officers that should have never been cops. And, mm-hmm. and, and unfortunately, those that are racist 
uh, in police, and there are some that are, uh, they, they don't belong in, in law enforcement. And so, so I would say that they really obscure that mission uh, that you talk about, which is the mission of protecting and serving uh, right. because they don't believe in the Constitution. And, and the police officers in the United States today are the embodiment of the U.S. Constitution. They are, they are the people that, that should have the Constitution written on their back. And when, when you look at, at what the constitu- how the Constitution starts, right, it starts with these, like think about all the, and I think about this often, right? You have this yeah. father, right, that are sitting in Philadelphia having this great discussion, right? So you have Thomas Jefferson, you have, you know, George Washington, you have these huge names, right, that we now know in, you know, in, in our country. As part of yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and you see, like, you think about what it was like to be in that hot room, I'm sure it was hot, you know, <clears throat> with all these people around them. And they said, how do we start this document? And, and you know, they, they had many possibilities, right? Mm-hmm. They had possibilities of starting the document with, you know, you the government. Or, <laughs> or, 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 or the government of the United States shall do X, Y, and Z. Right. So they all agree. And you know how difficult it is for people to agree on anything, right? Of so course. they all agree on the words, we the people. That, to me, is the most powerful, the most amazing inheritance that we got from them. Because, because if you really analyze what that means, right, if you understand what that means, then you understand what the role of police officers should be, right, which is to serve and protect, but it's we the people, not you the government. Right. And the Constitution is there to serve, to protect the people of the United States. And these folks, you know, I'll tell my students who, you know, some of them have never seen the Constitution, had the benefit of doing that, which is just an amazing experience, right? In my 50, almost 53 years of life, I, got, I finally got a chance to see it last year. And I started crying when I saw it, you know, because I was like, how great is it? Because when you don't know what it's like to live in a country without the Constitution, you have little appreciation for what it's like to live in a country with the Constitution, right? So, so when I got to see it, and I, I thought, I mean, it's like huge bold letters, right? Like if we were to put this in a Word document, it's like a 36, 48 font, you know? <laughs> yes. But so they did it with we, the people, right? And, and I mean, and they, they not only put those words, and that you understood that how important that was, I think that that sets the tone for what law enforcement is and what mm-hmm. law enforcement should be in the future. It should be about we the people. Right. As a community versus a a section of the community over. Right. Right. Now, considering your love of this country or the love of the Constitution and the role that law enforcement play, what were your reactions to the incidences like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor? Yeah. So going back to a question that I didn't answer when you asked me earlier, that's because I'm the typical college professor. I give you a lot of answers and never answer the question. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. You asked me about the, the job that I had with USDOJ. And so, and I'll answer your question about George Floyd in that regard. So, so during the course of the, you know, now 20 years almost that I've been involved in the work that I do as a civil rights expert uh, outside of my university, Mm-hmm. One of the things that I have done is I've testified in, in court, in federal court, um, related to cases of racism. I have I help agencies prepare 
their statistical data uh, and analyze the data on, on that. In fact, right now, uh, almost uh, as I'm speaking to you, I'm assisting the state in creating a template that will allow for agencies to submit the data in a, in a better manner than, than in the past, uh, mm -hmm. in a manner that More is Sandra Bland. Uh, but I also work in two huge cases, right, uh, related to police reform. <clears throat> One of them is the case in New Orleans uh, where the federal government basically came in and sued the New Orleans Police Department and mm -hmm. they settled the lawsuit and it was assigned to a federal judge, Susie Morgan, and, and Judge Morgan chose a team of people from throughout the country to come in to the New Orleans Police Department and assess the department and ensure that they attain compliance. So I did that for three years. And then uh, currently, I work for the federal judge in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, they, he's the chief judge of the U.S. courts there. And I came in as a, as a, as a monitor for a year and a half, two, almost two years. And then he asked me to step out of that role and step into the role of what's called a special master. And a special master means I'm kind of like the chief of staff of the judge uh, in the sense that, you know, I bring the USDOJ, I bring the Commonwealth attorneys and the monitor all in the same room. And we go through the data aspect of it, how the progress needs to be measured. So, so imagine a college professor, you know, mm -hmm. like I always say, the sense of humor that the good Lord has to bring in a first generation immigrant that mm -hmm. some years back I couldn't speak the language and now I get to represent the United States federal court, you know, like I get to mm -hmm. have this very important role when I, I get in a meeting, you know, it's kind of like I'm, I'm the embodiment of the judge. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically yeah. the person that represents the judge. He and I speak almost daily. Um, and, and so, so, so it's, it's a really, really great, uh, wonderful role to have. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then to, to see how I can help my currently my PhD students in that. So, so t looking at the broader picture of George Cole uh, and some of, the, some of the things that have happened in our country in the past few years, you know, if you look at, at the cases of Sandra Bland, if you look at the cases of Eric Garner in New York, mm -hmm. and various other cases, you know, they all made a huge impact, right? But nothing like George Floyd. George Floyd, in my view, changes everything. And, and, and George Floyd will, there will be a time that people will say, before George Floyd, and there will be a time that people will say after, after. George Floyd. Mm. Uh, because in my view, what it did do is it made the unbelievable believable. And I actually wrote this in my book, right? Where I said, mm -hmm. so, so I said, people that are white middle-class Americans that would have typically seen a video of a police officer engaging in what some people describe as excessive use of force, mm -hmm. they, they, for the most part, always had sort of a caveat. They would always say, well, yeah. the guy was selling cigarettes illegally. Well, but he resisted arrest. Well, but, but here you look at almost nine minutes worth of video of a guy that's lying down on the ground for allegedly having a counterfeit $20 mm -hmm. bill, which could have easily been given to him. We have no idea. Right. And so, so here's this guy on the ground pleading to breathe and pleading to talk to his mom. And, and, and I think the bigger point is that two, almost three minutes of the end of, of this officer having his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck, Mr. Floyd was apparently at that point already deceased, but at the very mm -hmm. least. Right. And so, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter if you're a minority or not. If it doesn't matter if you're a civil rights activist or an expert, if you look at that video, 
There is no question that Mr. Floyd should be around today and he should have never been killed. I mean, we are a country of laws, as George Washington said, and we, we have a constitution. And so to me, the George Floyd incident is a graphic proof that innocent people are dying and have died in the hands of a police officer. I should have never been a cop. And that, in my view, is going to require, I mean, we've seen the protests all around the world, and some of them continue. I think it's not going to end anytime soon. Yeah, it, it's hard to believe that it would just because of the incredible impact that it has made. Like, people know his name globally and know that there is an issue um, and there needs to be some change there. Now, a, a big issue that many citizens have been kind of contemplating and facing is the gap of time between when an incident has occurred and when charges are brought against officers. Can you kind of explain why there's that gap or that delay? Yeah, so, you know, oftentimes we look at the law and we say, you know, we want it to move very quickly. We want the person Mm -hmm. to be prosecuted, indicted within a week. Uh, Realistically, it doesn't work that way. And I think a lot of people have received information from Hollywood as to how the criminal justice system works, right? But you know, it's like police officers. Most people don't really understand what cops do, right? They, they mm-hmm. watch cops, the show, which has been, by the way, canceled since George Floyd's incident. Um, so, so a lot of this stuff has happened. And bottom line is, is that people don't really understand uh, that, that everything is delayed. Everything has a pause in the criminal justice system. And so, so first of all, there's got to be, let's say a shooting takes place, right? There's got to be an internal affairs investigation. Sometimes mm-hmm. that happens concurrently with the DA investigating the, the incident. They have to interview people. They have to take pictures. They have to analyze those pictures. They have to wait for the ruling of the coroner's office related to the person's death. They have to review the dash cam video, the body cam video. By the time all of that happens and multiple agencies are involved, reports are written and all of that, that prosecutor's job is to look at what, what does this, I mean, it may be, it may be awful, but it may be lawful, right? We say that all the time in law enforcement, right? So, so you know, it, it could be an awful thing to watch, but it may be still legal, right? What, what actually happened. And so, right. so, so, so that prosecutor has to look at that. That prosecutor has to determine whether or not he rises up to the level of legality and charge the individual with what that prosecutor thinks is going to work. Uh, because at the end of the day, I'm sure the prosecutor doesn't want to lose the case, right? Doesn't want to doesn't want to charge somebody for the sake of, of looking good in front of the community. But at the end of the day, you know, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to be successful in the prosecution. So, but, but you look to your question, more and more people are asking, more and more people are demanding for things to happen a lot quicker uh, than, than before. And we've seen some, some, uh, you know, prosecutors, we've seen some uh, police chiefs that have committed to being able to essentially charge the individual officers within X number of days uh, to release the video within 48 hours. And those are optically great ideas. I just hope that they don't compromise these cases for the sake of all. Because it is a jury of peers and there's still that element of everyone knows about this. So it's kind of hard to be objective in that manner. Exactly. Now, I want to get into a little bit 
you have a book, of course, we talked about it before, racial profiling. What, in your expert opinion, it, where did racial profiling and racial bias really start in the law enforcement system? You know, it's interesting because I think as a topic itself, it started since the beginning of times, right? So I think that if you look at the way that it's been sort of written, right, um, the racial profiling um, concept as a whole started, you know, probably since the beginning of time, right, when people began to label other people based on, you know, their color of skin, you know, you see in the Bible, for instance, the slaves and how they were treated, how they were labeled, um, you know, the, the Jewish people, how they have been throughout history, you know, mislabeled, uh, misconceived. But as it relates to law enforcement in the United States, I would argue that it probably started since the beginning of law enforcement in the U.S. You can actually see the early reports that were written by police officers in places like Boston, New York, where the, the officer described the subject based on the subject's ethnicity. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they would have adjectives accompanying the Italian names, you know, especially from the Irish police officers. And then right. uh, Italian police officers that would say the same about the Irish uh, people mm -hmm. who were arresting. So, so it really became an ethnic battle that was empowered. And many minorities actually felt that law enforcement was the career of choice. And the reason why you can go to places like Boston or New York now and see, you know, fifth generation police officer from Irish Americans. And mm -hmm. the reason why is because, because the Irish, for instance, they, they felt particularly empowered by being police officers. Think about it. The greatest dream of a minority coming to the United States as an immigrant is to not only adhere to the laws and the rules of the country, but be in a position to actually opine or in some cases enforce those laws, right? So, so, so that's like the, the complete full circle, right? Where you came in to be a subject of, and then at some point you became an agent of, right? The government. Right. So, so, so for a lot of these minority groups, they, they became empowered. Uh, it became a position of respect. It became a position where they were actually given, you know, uh, benefits. Um, it became a position where people had some respect for you and, and they would listen to you to some degree. So, so I think that, you know, that's what we, we started seeing, you know, some kind of an ethnic profiling. And then of course, racism has been part of our country sadly since the beginning, right? So we right. brought slaves to the United States. We enslaved African-Americans and, 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 and the, the labeling of blacks uh, as you related to them being uh, sold in the town squares. Um, and, and, and as it relates to non-Blacks, people that were coming from Europe through Ellis Island, I don't know if you know this or not, but, but uh, at Ellis Island, they would actually mark the forehead of the immigrant with a letter uh, if they were sick or if they had any mm -hmm. kind of quote-unquote deficiency, and they would put them on isolation. So that was a labeling, right? Uh, right. And, and, and then we, you know, the immigrants called the staircase to the second floor the 92nd physical because they would ask them to run upstairs and then they would take their pulse. And if they were out of shape, then they would be sent back. And so, so they had these sort of criteria of mm -hmm. labeling people. And there were certain immigrants that were not as scrutinized as others because they came from certain parts of the world that were a little, uh, you know, wealthier, right? Um, mm -hmm. so, so it's fascinating because when you talk about racial profiling, it was ethnic profiling, then it became racial profiling. But there's been a sort of a profiling and a labeling of people probably as old as, as society has existed. Mm -hmm. And you talked a little bit about how um, your experiences were teaching racial profiling in, in to our law enforcement, to our 
police chiefs in the state. What have academies or departments done to kind of com- combat this or establish a change um, in racial profiling since early 2000s? Well, you know, I, I think that, that, you know, a lot of agencies have really, truly um, taken this seriously. And I think a lot of agencies are really concerned. Um, I always say that there are agencies that there's probably three types, right? There's the agency that's really concerned and wants to do the right thing and they want to prevent it. Uh, so they enact policies that are very strong and ensure that their officers are following the rule of law as it relates mm-hmm. to racial profiling. They collect their data. They analyze their data. They do all the things that the state requires, right? Those are the ones that I've been very blessed to say that I've worked with a mm-hmm. lot of agencies, right? But, but they're mm-hmm. the people that are stand-up people. They want to do the right thing. Then there, the, the second tier is those that, that may or may not want to do the right thing, but they just fear a lawsuit, right? So, so they're just kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, you know what? We're going to do this because we have to. There's some degree of resentment, right? Because they're doing it and they're spending money on it. They're spending time. They're frustrated with their data. They think it's all nonsense, but they still know that if they don't do it, they'll be sued. Um, and then the third tier are those that are in complete denial. And, and they're just, they absolutely don't want to do anything. They're proud to say they don't do it. Uh, they have this sort of, uh, and the Justice Department calls it deliberate indifference, which is the mm-hmm. idea that they're deliberately indifferent to the requirement or to the need that is in place. And so they look the other way and, and they just simply go about their business, look the other way. And, and let it be there. So it's kind of interesting because, and again, I would argue that the majority of them want to either do the right thing uh, or, or they are simply fearful uh, of a lawsuit, right? Or maybe both. Right. Um, but, but there are still agencies out there, sadly, that, that could care less um, and that they just don't want to be part of the solution. Do you think that the measures, the, uh, the agencies that are trying to make that change, are they working? They, like considering the recent events, do you think they're actually having an effect or do we think we need to try something different? Yeah, so, so probably it's a great question, but probably the, the problem that we have is that we can never know what we prevented. That is kind of, we walk around and say, oh yeah, we think this worked, right? But, but I mean, where, how do you prove that something that you've been really hard working at, uh, is in fact, you know, useful, right? So, I mean, you have no way of knowing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, because, because you don't have victims and you don't have offenders. And so you can prove that prevention worked. And by the way, that's a dilemma that we face in criminal justice as a whole period, right? So mm-hmm. people talk about an ounce of prevention, right? So it's like, well, but it's really hard to prove to those that funded that an ounce of prevention is actually in place because most people right. are like, well, how do we know it? It worked out. Well, some people look at numbers and they say, well, we haven't had X number of lawsuits like we did in the past, or we haven't had X number of convictions of police officers that are corrupt or engaging in racism. So that must, it must be that something's working. I always say, Cole, that when you look at racial profiling, I don't judge agencies, but whether or not an incident took place. I judge agencies for what they have done prior to that incident and what they did after that incident in order to ensure that those incidents don't take place. If the agency is trying to do their best, they have good policies, they have good training, they make their officers accountable for what they do, they have a rigorous hiring process when they bring officers in. If they do a good job and they still have somebody that goes out there on a limb and they do something racist, 
you can't fault the agency because they're trying mm -hmm. to provoke the circumstances by which this doesn't happen, especially if they deal with it swiftly, transparently, and immediately. But, but, but if the agency is looking the other way, the incident happens, and then when the incident happens, they try to hide it, or they try to say, well, you know, but it's because we just needed X, Y, and Z. This poor officer was in distress. That's why he did what he did. If they provide those sorts of explanations and justifications, and it's clear that they haven't done anything about preventing such an act, then I think we need to be hard on that agency because they could have prevented it. What kind of things um, are you able to do to hold these kind of agencies accountable? Well, you mean if they actually fail to, mm -hmm. to do the job? Well, the, the state of Texas is very clear in the Sandra Bland Act, right? That, that if an agency does not purposely submit a racial profiling report or does what they're supposed to do, that the agency chief of police can actually be suspended, that their license can be suspended, and that the attorney general can actually sue the agency and collect $5,000 per incident. Um, and what that means is that the agency is financially responsible for not doing it. And then also the chief of police may be subject to losing his or her license, which is a pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I mean, there are penalties in place, but believe it or not, even though I would argue the majority of them comply with the law, there's still a few agencies around the state that kind of look the other way. And they're like, well, we fill out those little, two little forms once a year and, you know, we're, we're doing a good job. We just know that mm -hmm. we are and have a good day, you know? Right. Right. Now you mentioned before that, even if the agency is doing everything it can, um, there are still officers or, or those people that go out on a limb, is what you said. So how, what can we do to kind of change that aspect on, on the officer level versus the higher level? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I always go back because I've taught at police academies before and I've taught what's called in-service training before. I always go back and say that um, when you have a police officer that does something illegal, unethical, mm -hmm. or all of the above, that it's not only the responsibility of the manager or supervisor, but it's also the responsibility of that first recruiter that went out and brought back the individual to police work in the first place. And it also is a failure of training. It's a failure of good supervision. Um, so, so from my perspective, uh, what you can do about it is ensure that the, that, the, that the recruitment is actually that the standards that are in place are actually up to par with best practices. Um, mm -hmm. you know, since we had the Ferguson incident a number of years ago, <clears throat> many agencies have been on panic mode that they can't hire good qualified police officers. And so they've lowered their standards um, and have allowed certain people that should have never been allowed to be police officers to come into the ranks of law enforcement. The academy standards have also decreased substantially throughout the nation. So, so we find ourselves uh, at a time when we're bringing people that are very young, very inexperienced, uh, putting them through a background check that is not sufficient, and putting them through a police academy that's not good enough, uh, and then putting them in, in a very complicated environment, right, where people are walking yes, around. Like in Texas, yeah, in Texas, we have what's called the one, we are a one-party consent state, which means that if you consent to video or audio record somebody in public, you can do that without their authorization. So, so, so here we can assume that anytime a police officer goes out in the streets, he or she will be recorded by a city. And so, so we're putting them in those situations, sometimes a very violent situation with little training, little mentoring. And uh, I mean, I think it's just a, you know, it's a nightmare and it's also kind of like a perfect storm kind of situation. Right, you're put under a microscope uh, right away. Uh, especially by the media and 
the mass communication that everyone can have. Right, exactly. And, and, and in a matter of seconds. I mean, there, there are apps now that are in place that people download that they, are, uh, that they allow for the person interacting with the officer to activate the app and immediately uh, get somebody to come in uh, and, and you, go, you go live uh, mm-hmm. with that person uh, on Facebook, right? So, so, so right. essentially you can record your entire incident with a police officer right away. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, relating back to the George Floyd incident and post all of that, uh, a lot of people, of course, we've had protests happen and calls for change. And we see with uh, what you've done in the past that there has already been some established policies. But what do you say to people calling for a defunding of the police or rather a diverting of funding? You know, some people said when this whole concept of defunding the police came out, some people said that defunding the police meant to take the money completely away from police officers. And, and then some other people clarified and said, what we mean by defunding is actually reducing the budget or, or putting it in other areas, right? Mm-hmm. I think we have to be very careful. I've actually been a critic of the defunding the police uh, initiative. Okay. It, it makes no sense to me that you want to defund a person or an entity that may need help. Um, it, it seems to me like if somebody needs help, if you've got a relative that is you know, in need of, of medical care, like you're not going to go up to that relative and say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and cut back on your spending um, because I really think I need to teach you a lesson on how to take care of yourself better because it is mm-hmm. your actions that ended up making you sick, right? It makes no sense. Right. What I think we need to do is hold agencies accountable for what they do. I think there needs to be more transparency. I think we need to improve the training. I think we need to improve the standards. By which, uh, by which things are being done, right? So, so, I mean, I think all of those things are important, but they need funding for that. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, am, I am a skeptic, and I quite honestly believe that it's very dangerous. When we start playing politics, instead of relying on science, we rely on ideology and what becomes popular, what becomes acceptable in social media. Um, and we start taking money away from police entities that are already strapped for cash as it is, that's going to that's gonna affect the training quality. Right. That's going to affect the recruitment quality. That's going to affect the accountability factors. That's going to limit the number of supervisors that this officer is going to be exposed to. It's going to limit how many cameras need to be repaired. Um, do we want police officers less trained, less able, less accountable with equipment that malfunctions? Is that what we want out of police officers? Because ultimately... I think we can expect that at some point in our lives, we may need the assistance of a police officer. When you call 911, do you want that type of officer to respond to your call? I don't. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of this is maybe to get more body cams or um, more accountability, like what you said. And unfortunately, the world does uh, run on money. at this point, especially when it comes to government agencies that need that funding to get resources. So now I wanted to talk to you about something uh, kind of related to changing the practices and the policies uh, is the adoption of some departments have adopted partnerships between social workers and the police department. 
So what, what is your perspective on that? Yeah, so, so this is actually not a new thing, right? So if you look at police departments like Arlington, they already have a critical response team that when the officers show up to a domestic violence call, there are social workers that are already at the department on call that will get called out to the scene uh, to help out the victims, you know, kind of process that information. And, you know, here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where I live, we have one safe place, which is an amazing facility for domestic violence victims uh, that the Bass family uh, funded a number of years back. And it is a world-class facility that -hmm. allows for them to be safe, that allows them for them to be trained, to be counseled, uh, to be assisted. Um, It is a model for the rest of the United States. And so many, many experts, many uh, social workers are literally on call for these departments to to, to make. I I think we have to be careful that we we provide the assistance uh, to victims. There's no question. And there's also no question that police officers are not equipped to counsel victims. They're too busy writing reports, arresting suspects, and, 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 and securing the area, especially in a very complex situation as a domestic violence incident. Uh, but but, but so, so I, I am all for the assistance being provided by medical professionals. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm not sure I would want a social worker to be inside a patrol car to respond to what has been depicted by us criminologists as the most dangerous situation mm-hmm. that a police officer can go into, which is a domestic. Uh, in fact, uh, if you look at number of officers killed in the line of duty, if you look at number of officers injured in the line of duty, domestic violence uh, calls are typically in the top three uh, tiers, right? Because, mm-hmm. because they are very dangerous. Uh, police officers in some places have to respond with backup because they, could, they, they should not respond by themselves because of that right. safety protocol. Do we want to put a civilian with no weaponry, little police training in a situation like that before the situation has been contained? and neutralized, uh, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think we need to provide the assistance, but I would argue that the first responder is the first responder. And then once the, the situation is, 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 is secured, then that, that social worker or that counselor can show up. Right. Now looking at other incidences, like maybe um, for like homeless people or specifically, I guess, in the case of the um, the man who was shot at the Wendy's parking lot um, in Atlanta. Could social workers be used in that aspect and maybe not in domestic violence situations? Um, so, so that's a very interesting case, right? The Atlanta case, because mm-hmm. in my view, it's very different from the George Floyd case. Right. Um, here you have a person that falls asleep behind the wheel of a car, or cars, cars stationary. Uh, other cars cannot get past that individual. By the way, that happens in Texas quite a bit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, my wife is a judge and she gets called in on, you know, <clears throat> on those sorts of calls for warrants all the time, really? right? because, <laughs> yeah, especially places like Whataburger, you know, uh, that is open. Ah, 20 yes. uh, so, so people just go there and drunks, you know, park in the middle of the, of the, uh, of the, of, of the street there. And, and they don't, they block the other cars trying to get a meal at two o'clock in the morning, you know? So, mm-hmm. so, so the cops get called in, they go in there, the person is not responsive or the person is completely intoxicated. And they need to get a blood warrant, so they would call somebody like my wife to, you know, to provide that electronic war, war, uh, warrant signature so that they can withdraw the blood. They can draw the blood rather. But but at the end of the day, what what happens is is that in this particular case, again, um, you know, you can call a police officer. Police officer responds. Uh, that person needs to go home, right? 
Um, and, and, I, and I agree that there are instances where just because you can arrest somebody doesn't mean that you should. Um, but, but at the end of the day, what happens if these officers allow that person to go home without being accountable uh, and that person ends up killing someone? Uh, then, then the officer is all of a sudden responsible for letting a person that's intoxicated drive their car home uh, to do that. So I think that's obviously out of the realm of possibilities. The other possibility is to let the person walk home. What happens if the person walks home and then ends up in a fight with somebody or being a victim of something? I mean, we have, we have criminal laws uh, that suggest that public intoxication is a crime, right? People can get arrested for that. Do we want to allow the person to engage in public intoxication um, while, so, so they can walk home and perhaps be victimized by crime? The other, the other possibility is to let the person sit it out, right? You can, sit down in a park somewhere and talk to the person for the next three hours, give them a lot of liquid and make sure that they are well enough to walk home or call for a taxi. Uh, do officers have that kind of time? Um, if, you need an, if you need an officer to show up to your house because somebody is burglarizing you, do you want to be okay with that officer sitting out a drunk somewhere outside of a parking lot for that mm -hmm. to happen? So, so, so I don't think that there is, and, and then social workers, what will they do? Will they drive the person home? And why do we need a social worker, right? Um, so so I, I don't know. You know, I, I think that it does bring a lot of possibilities out there. And I know right. officers are consumed by those kinds of calls, sometimes at night, uh, which become really more of a time-consuming effort than anything else. But in that particular case, I would argue that those officers have very limited possibilities as to what they could do. So it seems to be, while this partnership could be a good thing, um, and it has worked in the past, it could be a little more complicated than um, what it seems. You know, Paul, I have found over the course of my career that these quick solutions that are provided in social media by, you know, sometimes, you know, people in the media or, you know, activists or, or they're great and they sound amazing, right? But, but, but mm -hmm. when you think about the comp complexities of police work, they have to really be thought out, right? And if you go back to my comments that I've been making for years now, I've always been an advocate of science, uh, more so than politics. And, and I know that by doing that, you sort of make, I have a tendency of sometimes making both sides upset because, you know, conservatives are like, well, why are you saying that? And, and, then, and then folks that are maybe of a liberal incline may say, well, why are you saying that? Um, so I'm, not, I'm never liberal enough and I'm never conservative enough. Mm. But, but that's because I'm a scientist. I'm not an activist. Um, and not that being an activist is a bad thing, right? I mean, we've all needed activists in our country. In some mm. ways, our founding fathers were activists, right? But, 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 I, but I am a scientist. And so, so my, my job is to bring science to the question. Uh, and maybe through my science, provide and articulate more questions. But nevertheless, to provide a scientific method to the question at hand, and then let the policymakers decide what the best course of action is. Uh, mm -hmm. But I would argue that science has to proceed over ideology and over anything else because we, that's what we do. We, we, we try to show correlations, we should try to show efficiency. Uh, in the case of social workers, I think they have a role. Counselors mm -hmm. have a role in the job that law enforcement does. I think it would be a good idea to populate more counselors and more social workers to the law enforcement ranks, but I'm not sure that they need to be in a patrol car as the first responding unit mm -hmm. of domestic violence. I'm, I'm not sure we want to risk their lives that way uh, without giving them the proper training, weaponry, 
And then at that point, they quit being social workers and they're more they start being officers. Um, and, and I will also finish by telling you this and this, this concept that, you know, if we want to defund the police uh, and then at the same time give them social workers, uh, I'm not sure how that works. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't have any more questions for you, but are there any points or issues that we haven't discussed that you thought was important for the listeners to hear? Yeah, I think, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier in your podcast, which I, by the way, appreciate the wonderful opportunity to be part of this exciting and uh, program that you have. And, and I'm, I'm a huge advocate for uh, social means of communication. And if, and if this podcast reaches your audience and informs them about something that they did not know, well, mm-hmm. we both have done something good today. But, but I will tell you that at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm a first-generation immigrant. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm new to the United States relatively um, in the sense that I was not born here. I did not have that privilege. Um, my passport still says Nicaragua as place of birth, even though it's a United States passport. I, um, mm-hmm. I look at our country as being on the crossroads of something historically very important. But one of the great things that makes us Americans is the fact that we are resilient and the fact that we don't give up. And one of the things that makes us Texans, right? Texas has been the place where I've lived the longest. I'm married to a native Texan. And I consider myself a Texan, even though I wasn't born here. But I say it like it is. And, and I think that that attitude of a Texan is what makes Texans a, a Texan. Aside from the beef and the wonderful beef <laughs> and the wonderful yes. you know, cultural realities that we have here, what I love about Texas is the sincerity that Texans have. Uh, the lack of tolerance for nonsense. And, and I will tell you that, that I love that. I love that about Texans. And I fit right in when I came here 22 years ago. And, and I have adopted uh, the culture of the state and consider myself a Texan as native as those that are born here. But I will tell you that we Texans and we Americans, you know, have a moment in history uh, as to how we're going to play this out. We can either come together and figure out ways to solve it, or we can be divided and divisive and, and, and come up with a rhetoric of fighting in, in, internally that is going to destroy our democracy. You know, I, I have been part of cultures and countries where we have been at those cross, crossroads and the people have elected to be divisive and to launch a war against each other. And the outcome is always the same, which is the end of a democracy. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to tell you something to your listening audience out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ever, in spite of all of our problems, in spite of COVID, in spite of George Floyd's death, in spite of all of these huge things and challenges that we have ahead for us. If you still think the United States is not the best country in the world, let me know, reach out to me, and I'll make sure I take you somewhere so that you can see what the option is uh, on the other side. And, mm-hmm. and America still continues to last, to be the last beacon of hope for the democratic nations of the world. And, and I will tell you that we owe it to ourselves we owe it to our history. We owe it to our children to get this right. Mm-hmm. And, and what that means is not only to allow ourselves to be part of a, of, a, of a solution to COVID by wearing our masks or being conscious of other people, but also, but also as it relates to race, to knock it off, to, 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 to really just look at who we are as people. If you're listening audience, 98% of them, I guarantee you, are descendants of immigrants. You know, what makes you more of an American than somebody else that came here to the United States? 
if I'm willing to give my life for the United States, if I'm willing to stand up in front of riots and in front of, 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 of chaos uh, to record how police officers react, as I did in Puerto Rico last year, in front of the massive protests that they were having against the governor. And as I stood there on behalf of the United States government, United States courts, to record, to report any violations of the Constitution. What makes me less of an American than anybody listening on this call? We're all the same. It's our attitude. It's our loyalty. Right. It's our love for our country and the things that it stands for. And so I would remind your audience that it's time to roll up our sleeves, to be part of the solution, to embrace each other, and to be Texans, and to be Americans, and to take and to be on the right side of history by being solutions makers and provokers of solutions, not the causes of the problems. Thank you so much for coming on and having this interview with me. It's been very insightful, and I really think the listeners are going to like it, and I'm really excited to share it. Thank you, Cole. And when you do share it, let me know. I'd love to pass it on to others and, and know that I appreciate your work. You're great at what you do. So keep it up. Okay. You do. <laughs> Thanks. I would like to thank Dr. Del Carmen once again for coming on the show. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I did. He gave some really intriguing answers and definitely gave a different perspective on everything. Now we went over a lot of information and of course there's still plenty of material to go over. So if you have any more questions or you think we didn't cover something, I will include resources in the bottom in the description, as well as a link to Dr. Del Carmen's book, Racial Profiling in America. Be sure to check back for the next episode where we'll hopefully be discussing the experiences of international students and the current issues surrounding their education experience. For more updates about the show, be sure to go to The Planet 100.7 on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. That's the radio station we're based out of. Until next time, folks, be safe and take care. has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.